Hello to everyone and welcome to another expert podcast run by UNESCO's Inclusive Policy Lab. This is part of our expert series, which focuses on a post-COVID reset, a reset, of course, along more equitable and smart paths than the ones that might emerge spontaneously. As always in these podcasts, which it's my pleasure to moderate again, I've moderated quite a few previously, this conversation will revolve on the one hand around concrete policy measures that our invited experts see as being conducive to more equitable recovery. And on the other hand, on the data and the knowledge that we have that could or perhaps should inform these policy shifts. And probably we'll also be talking about the data and knowledge we don't have, that, but that we might need, and also the ways in which available data and knowledge are not being used. Our invited expert today is Gri Hesselbelk. Uh, Gri is an expert in data ethics, power dynamics in data, and the human approach to big data. She has served, among other roles, as a member of the European Commission's high-level expert group on AI and a member of the Danish government's first data ethics expert group. And these roles and areas of expertise will be critical to our conversation today. Uh, Gri, welcome. Thank you very much for agreeing to appear on this podcast. Well, thank you for having me. My name is John Crowley. I'm UNESCO's Chief of Research Policy and Foresight, and I'll be uh, hosting this podcast today, along with my colleague co-hosting, Yulia uh, Sevchuk, UNESCO's lead on inclusive policies and data use in policy. This podcast comes under our thematic stream on data for good, in which we're looking into new data, current data landscapes, the main risks and inequalities in data systems, and the place of data in the post-COVID recovery, both data specifically on the issues that relate to the post-COVID recovery, and also the broader question of how data systems can take and play uh, a place in a better new world. As the first part of our discussion, I'd like uh, Greed to invite us, and invite you in particular, to talk about power structures and data. It's hardly surprising uh, if you're a social scientist I'm a political scientist by background, so it doesn't surprise me that the data systems uh, we have around us and that we see emerging follow existing power dynamics. They drive existing inequalities and produce new forms of inequalities on the basis of those pre-existing patterns. They also give rise to new groups within countries and globally of haves and have-nots. So in, in light of these fairly obvious points, which are to be expected, what do you see, uh, Gree, as the key forms of misuse and inequities in these economies of data, nationally or globally? And please choose the level uh, you uh, prefer to respond on, or, or both, if you wish. Mm. Well, first of all, I think uh, I think historically it's interesting to see a transformation of, of of the data systems that we're using and that we have in our everyday lives, because I mean it's. The reinforcement, as you say yourself, of power dynamics in data systems is, is not a new thing. We've always had registers, we'd always have forms of data systems that uh, that reinforce or exasperate data dynamics. But the point is that, that today we have this kind of seamless, costless extra layer of everything we do, uh, where data is collected about us and on us in different con contexts. And mostly it's something that we're not really aware of. So it's a, it's a kind of invisible um, extra layer of life where you could say that some of the power dynamics and some of the, the interest that, that, for example, if you had a register in, during the Second World War and <laughs> these kind of registers were more visibly uh, collected and done uh, by a dominant regime of power, but today we have this kind of submersion of being part of registers and systems of, of data and power in general. And, and the problem is with these systems is that the interests that are invested in many of these systems, when we, uh, from everything from uh, our private relations to when we go to school, when we uh, are part of the welfare system, when we uh, when we read the news and so on and so forth, they they are much more invisible than we were used to um, or what we've seen before in history. 
And so, of course, uh, that's one side of it. Another side of it is that many of the technologies that uh, that are being used um, today and that kind of build these systems are basically using data as a resource. And in this way, data becomes uh, and also an economic interest. So not only uh, an interest in terms of how we control things and how we create power relations, but also an economic interest in terms of what resources we have in society and how they're distributed. And so we have a lot of national interests. Uh, we have a competition between different regions in the world right now. So if we think about AI, for example, there's a competition. We talk about the competition between the EU's uh, interest in developing AI, but not only developing AI, but also developing a, a data infrastructure for AI, and between China and US as the two core other forces. And in this kind of uh, competition, you also have a competition between different systems and different values uh, invested. And so basically that's how what we see right now historically, we, I think we've always seen historically powers uh, fighting over the technologies we build or, or the different infrastructures that we have. But today they're much more present in terms of uh, um, technological innovation and business innovation and these things. So that's the, the, the kind of key, from a very macro perspective, uh, the way that powers are being interrelated today. Yeah, I, um, thank you very much for that. I think there's one point that certainly I would like to pick up on explicitly before Yulia asks a, a, a follow-up question, uh, which is the point you make that maybe in older style data systems, uh, it was clear that data was provided. Uh, by the, the object of the data, uh, who was in that sense also the subject of the data, provided by filling in a form or provided by being required to answer uh, questions from an official. And it's true that one of the interesting things about current data systems is just how much data you provide that you're not even conscious of providing, that you didn't deliberately provide at all, mm -hmm. and perhaps that you couldn't recognize as data at your level because it only really emerges from patterns of data that involve others as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and that does create, I, I completely agree with you, a different character to uh, the, the new economies of data. Um, and the question of individual control for that reason, important though it is, doesn't exhaust the question of control because some things aren't really individualized. Patterns in particular uh, are inherently collective, which raises the question of what kind of collective control uh, might be required uh, for them. But Yulia, you, you have a follow-up question. Yes, uh, thank you, Gri. You diagnosed uh, the, the key problems, uh, key inequities, but what do you think should be done, and done probably fast, to avoid deeper and more profound entrenching of these inequities into the data systems and the attached value chains? And you are talking about data. Um, in economic terms, so what, what what do we do about it? What do you think we should be thinking and doing now? Mm. Well, what, what the first thing, uh, my first response is to say that every complex pros problem always deserves some complex solutions. No? So with, if we think about social technical change and, and the way that technologies are changing in our lives and in our societies, then they don't change just by you know focusing on for example the technological the technical dimension but we have to think of uh, the response that we make as, as a, a com uh, complex set of different solutions. So we have to think of, for example, technological solutions, we have to think about educational solutions, we have to think about uh, what we invest in and what kind of business cultures that we are uh, enticing. Um, and also in terms of public authorities, for example, what, what how do we equip them to, for example, procure the proper systems. Um, so there, there's a lot of um, uh, facets of, of this change that we clearly need, because right now, until now, as I said before, we have this invisible form of power that is actually challenging uh, democratic uh, systems in, in, in very fundamental ways. Um, so. If we think about, for example, Europe, uh, which is the area that I have been most focused on the last couple of years and been most involved in, then um, you could basically say that the GDPR was kind of uh, 
one of the pivotal moments um, where basically you could see a, a region responding very forcefully to, uh, we could say, a system that was uh, basically running out of control. We were we were getting a lot of news about at that time, actually, only a year after it was launched, we had the Snowden revelations, uh, and then slowly we've got intensified more and more stories about data leaks and and um, and bigger hacks and different ways of using data to manipulate, for example, uh, voters and uh, democratic processes. And so we've been seeing many of these kind of ethical and social implications of having these uh, systems. And so one of the things that we saw in Europe was, first of all, was this legal response, which was very forcefully implied in terms of uh, data protection. But then after that, it's kind of been seeding through to other areas. Uh, we see reactions from states, but also, you know, competition authorities that are looking at data monopolies. Uh, we are looking now in, in Europe at uh, actually just... Uh, a few days ago, we had the AI regulation introduced that is basically looking at AI, different uses of AI that definitely also concerns the data infrastructures and the way they process data that are being prohibited. So we have the legal response here. Um, then one part of this solution that we also see in Europe and things that are coming out is this uh, response in terms of how do we build technologies, how do we build uh, data technologies, um, so the, the very infrastructure. So we basically have had an infrastructure that was uh, came out of a particular technological culture and environment um, where you be, it was about, you know, get as much data as you can because data is profitable and we don't really, uh, we're not too concerned about, you know, in the other end, uh, where do we get the data from and what are the risks in terms of, for example, the people that we collect data on. Um, but now we're having a reaction, and as I said, mostly coming from Europe, in terms of building uh, things like data trusts um, or data intermediaries, where you basically turn around the power relations embedded in these uh, digital infrastructures. So instead of having um, big companies or even states uh, sitting on a big uh, holds of data, you now have uh, built some kind of technical solution where you will have as a citizen insight into your data and you can actually even go in and tweak your own data. So there you have in the very technological environment, you have uh, solutions or not solutions, but at least you, you change the infrastructure of how data is uh, distributed among citizens and, and big power actors. So those are the technological thing. And then on the, and the very end, you have education. Um, we are being educated uh, with the different uh, by simply just in our everyday life when we suddenly realize that we don't have control of our data. Um, we are being educated by the different leaks, uh, data leaks we hear about and different stories we hear about in the news. But basically what we also need is uh, right here and right how to, to um, to, to get a kind of a different kind of data literacy, to understand how data is not just a non-neutral, apolitical side of our life, but it's it's uh, it's being designed uh, this data environment we have. So we have three sides of it actually that I'm talking about now: the legal side, the uh, technological side, and the educational side. And together, uh, hopefully, we'll create some kind of culture that means that we will build data differently and also conduct business differently with uh, data. Thank you. In your remarks um, over the past uh, few minutes, you were talking a lot about the question of control. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's another angle which you've also written a lot about, which is the question of privacy. Not a completely different angle, of course, because after all, if nothing was private, the question of control would arise even more. Uh, but clearly, there is a legitimate interest in both aspects of um, uh, the issue. And indeed, uh, privacy is itself a control issue. And you've written about the inequities and divides that can arise with respect to, to, to privacy. And I uh, think you've even uh, made the point in some of your writings that privacy might be becoming a luxury for an elite only. So I, I'd be very interested to hear you elaborate a little bit um, the nature of this divide, the risks that you see, and perhaps also the safeguards that you could imagine uh, to prevent uh, this um, 
uh, nightmare of privacy being a pure luxury good. Mm. Yeah, well, the, the biggest problem, and I mean, now we're talking about reinforcing existing uh, power dynamics, which is always is the case in terms of this new data environment we have. And basically what we see when we see both the application of AI, but also the the use of particular just average social media services and everything, um, or using uh, algorithms in public administration and so on forth, basically we see the same divides that we've seen before. That the, the people that many of these, for example, in public administration, many of these algorithms or tools are being applied to are usually the most vulnerable groups in society. And so they're also the, usually the ones that where their data and their privacy is exposed uh, very often. So we see many of, of the traditional divides that we've seen before. And basically, um, if you, it, the, the case is also if you think about the business models, for example, of uh, now we we have right now the the original business model of, uh, of for example, social media services and or, uh, the services we're mostly used to, it's this free model. So um, you pay with your data is almost like a cliche now. Uh, and and we'll in the future we'll more and more often we'll probably see services that are offered where you can either choose to pay with subscription for example or you choose the free version, um, and if, of course if you choose the free version uh, you have to pay with something else and of course it's the ones that can pay that will pay uh, to preserve their privacy and in this way you will have this divide on a very basic level between the ones that can pay and that cannot. On a more general level, you also see, for example, big companies like Facebook that offers things like free basics, which is uh, basically a scraped version of their services to uh, countries in, uh, in developing countries like in Latin America or in Africa or in Asia. Um, where basically what the users then uh, pay back with, uh, because of course they cannot afford other services, is huge amounts of metadata. And so again, you have the thing, you have uh, developing Western countries very often where you have, for example, in the EU, you get protected by the GDPR. We have very strong safeguards. It's not worth it for a country to go and offer the free services and collect the data. But there'll be other countries where um, where the first need to just get online is more important or is considered more important than privacy. But in the very end, uh, you again have this gigantic divide between, again, vulnerable groups uh, or regions uh, and and uh, other regions where you have people that uh, that per definition have more privacy and gets uh, more privacy safeguards. And I suppose an, an obvious follow-up, um, looking at it almost anthropologically, is the extent to which many people don't seem to be too worried about this. Um, as if uh, the convenience of free services, even understanding that you have to pay for them with something else, which is the sacrifice of your privacy, is actually more important than the privacy you've sacrificed. Um, what's your perception of this? Are, are we here worrying about something uh, that actually many people don't worry about, which doesn't mean they're right not to worry, it's just a fact. Um, or is it simply that they uh, don't see any alternative and therefore take for granted a certain mode of corporate control? What, what, what's your feeling um, or perhaps what's the evidence uh, for, for a view on this? So your question is uh, whether we should just get used to that privacy is no longer a social norm. Um, because that has been the statement uh, previously. Um, and I think, you know, basically, I mean, there's a reason why we have a right to privacy, for example. And it's not only a reason that is based on, on whether it's convenient or whether it's a social norm or not. It's, it's, uh, it's a fundamental right that has, it has been uh, established uh, to ensure uh, a particular society, a particular balance of power. Uh, and so, of course, this balance of power um, is not something that you see uh, and that you can even appreciate in your everyday life. 
So there's only in very particular moments, for example, that an every that an individual would, for example, consider or realize that their right to privacy is important to them. Um, still, you go every single day. You cover up uh, your body, or you close the door when you go to the restroom, or things like this. That 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 really evidence that the privacy is a social norm not only uh, as we said a, a right that uh, that also ensures that uh, that we can uh, behave in a certain way um, in in a democracy so i i mean basically there's two sides of privacy one that that enables us to to um, to behave socially among other people and the other side is is that it's a collective right that that uh, ensures that we have a, a level of freedom uh, when we interact with big institutions or big powerful actors for example and so um, i mean uh, whether it's it's convenient or or, or not uh, you know my answer is just that you know it's it's a necessity so <laughs> that's that's a very interesting answer uh, because it it basically as you said explicitly means that uh, privacy is not really an individualizable uh, right but rather a form of social responsibility um which which is a very interesting way of formulating the issue and i think a more coherent one i agree with you on on that uh, it's not for me to have personal opinions, I suppose, mm -hmm. and I, I don't know what UNESCO's official view is, uh, but it makes sense to me that the purely individualistic approach um, creates paradoxes and absurdities, whereas the social responsibility approach actually is more stable and easier to uh, understand. And of course, it would mean that there are certain things you shouldn't be allowed to um, uh, make public, even if you find it convenient, and even if someone pays you to do so, uh, which is uh, an, an, an interesting issue from a regulatory perspective as well, of course. Um, and to some extent, I suppose that's where recent um, European regulation has gone, perhaps not strictly legally, but certainly in terms of its philosophical underpinnings. Um, anyway, uh, I, I know that Julia wants to move to some rather different issues, so go ahead, please, Julia. Well, before that question, I actually have a follow-up uh, question on this uh, privacy divide, Fred. You mentioned developed countries and developing countries, and it sounds to me like there is yet another global divide in terms of privacy and the privacy divide. You say that in the global south, the imperative now is to get online, hence people don't mind paying uh, with their privacy. Here in the Yet in the global north, Europe, North America, and so on, uh, people have an understanding of the issue, which requires education, um, um, as, as you mentioned before, plus they can afford paying for their privacy. So do you think that globally we'll be seeing such a divide too? Yes, uh, definitely. I mean, it is already there, that divide. Anytime, you know, uh, uh, you even see it in research. If you cannot get it, for example, do particular research and collect your data in in a country with particular legal safeguards uh, for protection of data or privacy, then some, uh, depending on which, but you would go and collect it in a, in a country with less safeguards, no? Uh, and and basically that's what the big companies are also doing. No, they they it's easier to if you cannot get the data from a country with bigger safeguards or um, where people then choose to pay in other ways, then you go in a different way. And so generally you have internal uh, in regions digital divides. So as I said before, most of the applications, for example, in public administration where you've seen algorithms applied or AI tools applied, uh, for example, to uh, to decide uh, benefits or detect tax fraud or to uh, detect um, vulnerable uh, children and their families, they are mostly applied and the biggest problems are there they're mostly applied in, in, uh, to vulnerable groups in society or people who are struggling in different ways. And so there you have the internal digital divide. And then we have, as you said, the, the, um, 
the more uh, you can say a global digital divide, but it, it uh, happens on all levels in society. This digital divide in terms of who can afford and who uh, who can afford to to have who has the liberty to keep this uh, right to privacy, and and I think it's it's a great problem because uh, as as we've said before, as we talked about before, is that the right to privacy is not just. It isn't a good. It's not a luxury good or anything. It's 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 a fundamental right, which means that it should be the default for everything we do, whether you have the money to pay for it or not, uh, because this is the only way we can ensure the kind of democratic societies that that we're aiming for. Um, so so it's it's a great problem to have these uh, digital divides. Uh, enforcing uh, or reinforcing existing uh, social inequalities between regions, but also within regions and within uh, nations. Okay, thank you. Um, now let's uh, talk about a very hands-on idea you had or rather predicted. You compared environmental reporting to data reporting. You said that being eco-friendly has become an investment demand, uh, that it's a legal requirement and a competitive advantage. Now, you predict that data equity and data reporting will develop similar, similarly, but um, in a much faster way. Um, how do you see this happening? Where does the demand and the pressure comes from? Because we just talked about privacy and the fact that many don't understand the value. So to put pressure and to demand something, you need to understand the value of, of that good, let's say. And are there any examples in jurisdictions that you see being um, seriously engaging with this idea of data reporting and data equity? Of course, it changes from 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 member state to member state how you consider this. Uh, you could see data as a as a kind of. Uh, either as a competitive advantage even for the member state or for the for the business environment within the state or whether you consider it um, as a in a risk framework i would say the best example i can think of right now is also um, investors for example if you think uh, you know one thing is the consumers and the citizens that are try starting to feel the loss of control of their data from everyday little encounters you know, you're told that suddenly your data is leaked by Facebook or uh, you are suddenly denied access to something and you don't know why. And those kind of little encounters by people uh, puts a pressure or makes uh, people start reacting in terms of, for example, you we saw recently uh, within the last couple of years, people using ad bloggers or using encrypted services and upsurge of using Signal, for example. And investors uh, that are investing in companies are, of course, seeing uh, this kind of change in uh, mood, and they're also seeing the change in regulatory environments. So you see a lot of investors that are requiring the companies that they're investing in uh, to have not only kind of data protection legal compliance, but that they're also considering data, the risk of data, the data in terms of um, the brand risks, if you are not uh, only managing data probably, but that you're not giving the kind of agency that uh, your customers uh, need in terms of the data. So you have from the more unforeseen, of course, you have the legal environment that are requesting that data is being treated in a proper way and that we have particular data design. But you also have the, the investors that are pushing companies to change their practices and doing things differently. A follow-up on this. So you talk about data reporting and the pressure in the business ecosystem. Um, well, if we take this environmental reporting comparison and data reporting further, there are countries where sustainability reporting and environmental reporting uh, uh, goes to, to the government uh, together with annual fiscal reporting. Would you imagine data reporting becoming that if data is, if we live in economies of data, if data is a tradable asset, if our businesses are and the models are entrenched in that, do we report on it and on the equity and the use of it to the government? And should we? 
Yes, well, it's actually already happening. Uh, Denmark just uh, introduced a law that makes uh, data ethics, um, a report on data ethics for companies in Denmark, part of the annual reporting. So it is actually starting in some places to do this. Another side of this is, for example, and this is a different side, but it, it is just as relevant is to have, for example, um, transparency registers or registers for algorithms, for use of algorithms uh, in, in, public, um, in public institutions. So we have Amsterdam and Helsinki, for example, that are, have these kind of registers of algorithms, which is something that we see uh, uh, being looked at from different angles, uh, and that's mostly in Europe as, as as best practice example. So we'll see more and more of these kind of requirements from governments to say, okay, you have to do, report on uh, not only legal aspects, but also, you know, wh how are you considering the uh, ethical and the social impact of the way you use data? And uh, in terms of uh, transparency, in terms of the algorithms that treats the data. So this is just the beginning of uh, tiny little uh, things that changes, that will change the way that we do things and that will uh, put different requirements on, on companies and institutions uh, that design and, and use data. Thank you. That's very interesting. Thank you. In the second part of this discussion, um, I'd like to invite you to discuss with us issues to do with data and uh, COVID. Um, we've been talking in more general terms about the issues so far. And of course, COVID raises some particularly interesting questions. It did not create, obviously, and you've said very clearly why, um, the need for regulations, but it did perhaps expose the need uh, for certain kinds of regulations. And the regulatory challenge is a kind of balancing act. Again, we've been discussing this already in, in the podcast between being permissive enough for data to thrive, uh, particularly because data properly managed can be a genuine public good, allowing things to be known that otherwise would not be known. And of course, in the face of a health crisis, there are lots of reasons to want a rich and effective data system. Yet at the same time, uh, give adequate guarantees that data is not being uh, misused. So my question is, in your view, how equipped um, are countries develop, developing, there might be differences both between those two categories and within each of them, to regulate data, um, particularly in the context of a pandemic with the lack of time and space to prepare? Um, Obviously, it's not a matter of giving A to F for any particular country, but are we, are we doing reasonably well in this area or do we have pretty big problems to deal with, in your view? Mm, well, it's a very good question. But I, as I said, again, I know most and have been following most what has been going on in Europe. And I think what is interesting is to see how... Um, you know, when, when the pandemic broke out, uh, Europe was in a particular, um, or the world in general, were at, in policy-wise, we were at a particular moment in which we'd reached uh, the, the debate on data and the ethical implications and the power dynamics had reached uh, a particular maturity, level of maturity. And so there was uh, a focus a while Many years ago, you know, the main debate was how can we get enough data? You know, big data was the big issue and the big worried. How do we have enough data? How can we get it? We, there wasn't too many ethical considerations. But when the then within the kind of the, particularly in, at the end of the 2010s, we'd kind of reached a level where we not only thought about privacy, but we also thought about general, uh, you know, the worry about, you know, challenges to private, we also thought about the, the kind of democratic effects it had uh, with these data infrastructures that we had. So when the pandemic broke out, I must say that some of the things I saw, I think, put down, kind of scraped uh, some of those concerns a little bit to the bare essentials. So for example, when we had the uh, discussions about the contact tracing apps and, and what kind of infrastructure would we have for that, 
Then uh, it didn't take long before suddenly uh, some big tech companies came in and offered uh, a particular, or didn't even offer, but said either you use this infrastructure or or, um, or you simply don't create a contact tracing app. And that was kind of um, the main concern uh, and and not really... And 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 governments they they kind of bend it over and said that's okay we'll we'll do it like this so so the my main concern was that where we had reached this kind of very mature discussion about what role for example some of the companies that were monopolizing the data that we have uh, played and how this should be challenged by law and and by citizens it it got a little bit of a set uh, back. Um, at the same time, you, you, I've also been quite surprised by looking, or not surprised, I, I kind of thought it was expected, um, the way that, that there's been a big acceptance also in, in, among the average population and, and among governments and so on um, the kind of uh, digital data surveillance uh, that, that we accept in order to get a little bit of security and also health benefits. So we we see kind of an accept we saw an acceptance of, of different forms of biometric surveillance and and different fo forms of collection of data using data for triads decisions and these things, and many times I know when 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 some of these data technologies were being developed, the whole ethical procedure you have when, for example, you create a technology like use an AI technology for a, triad situation in a hospital, for example, these ethical procedures that you have before you introduce something like this were sped up and, and maybe perhaps too fast sometimes. And then, of course, uh, when we have to do this, uh, there's some risks involved uh, in terms of uh, in the implications uh, of, of data use. So I think that there's to a certain extent, there's luckily we were at a stage where we were where the entire conversation on the power of data was very mature. But I also saw different kind of very sped up processes in terms of uh, what we introduce and what we accept, and what also the average citizen accept. I've seen average citizens accepting incredible uh, limits on their liberties um, just to to feel a little bit more. Um, uh, secure, so you know, liberties in terms of what kind of data they provide and, and share. Let us cover now data as key to governance and key in decision making. Um, the private sectors, and we've been uh, discussing this uh, before, uh, has seen massive investment in their data culture and especially in their capacity to critically engage with with data and to absorb it in their decision making in the private sector. Other sectors really lagged behind. Um, how important is it uh, for the governments and for the policymakers to have standing capacity to engage with new data? Um, at a much faster pace, um, including in crisis situations such as uh, the COVID crisis? Well, I mean, that's again the, the question of um, the, you could say it's fair benefit sharing in terms of uh, the, the distribution of data within the very data infrastructure we have. So I, I mean, the, the data technologies that we have now, and in especially new AI applications, can can actually make a difference in terms of tracing diseases and understanding uh, a pandemic. Um, and so it's a it's it's a, a very important resource for governments, just like it is for uh, for companies. The problem is right now that many times a lot of this data is 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 monopolized by particular interests. So, um, so we might not have the possibility to actually take advantage of some of these data. And then, at the same time, you know, as a as a, a as a government, I wish you, companies would do the same thing. But uh, governments also needs to have a particular safeguards in place. So it's not that that uh, any use of data is possible. Um, but definitely, I think that it's it's a resource that that. Uh, that governments, just like companies, uh, could take advantage of if they actually had the access to the data. Thank you. Um, 
Well, going a bit farther, um, my question is more about human capacity and developing in government capacity for humans, for people to engage with data that is produced at a pace and volume never seen before. Um, do you think they should be investing in it? Do you think they should be breeding analysts and data scientists for the new age, not for the age of statistical data that is almost gone? Um, well, yeah, we need different capacities. So that's one capacity you need, but you also need uh, at the same time uh, different teams that are working with data. So one thing is to to be able to understand uh, huge amounts of data and, and apply technologies to understand huge amounts of, of uh, data, but you also actually need to have <coughs> different kind, kinds of uh, qualities to um, to understand the limits of the data and to understand the ethical implications. So we, at the same time, one thing I'm missing very often that I see in these, uh, when you see a team, for example, in public administration or anything, you have, for example, the IT person or, or not even the data scientist sitting and working with data and not really uh, working together even with the rest of, of, of the organization, but working together with different kinds of competences like uh, social scientists or political scientists that understands the the power dynamics of these systems or, um, or even people with humanistic qualities that can, uh, that can understand this data. Because as I said, um, and I've said that earlier, I think one of the key things that we have to, uh, we really need uh, a kind of level of skills and education that doesn't only just understand data as data, but manages to understand it in the kind of power dynamics that we're talking about right now. So both on a micro level, the power dynamics in terms of uh, potential discriminatory effects on people that you are um, using your data technologies on, or social, grander social effects. Uh, or and even on the macro scale, um, people that understands uh, what kind of role does this data technology have in the macro economy uh, or the national sphere or the regional politics. So, so those are the kind of skills that we need. And it sounds very grand, but right now, uh, the education skills is very much focused on on this kind of data science understanding of data, while we need a much broader uh, level of skills. Are you saying that uh, we shouldn't be breeding a whole uh, different species of data scientists, but integrating data skills in all the other uh, roles and uh, and profiles? Yes, exactly. Exactly that, and also the other way around. So the, the data scientist also needs to either to cooperate with different kinds of skills or uh, be educated uh, at a very basic level in terms of also uh, at the university uh, courses or even from, we can even have it from high school that you start uh, learning about and getting a particular kind of data literacy that doesn't only understand data as a technology or as a mathematical formula, but as something that has a, is a component of a much larger social life and, and power dynamics. We'd like to close in the third part of this podcast by discussing the connections between data and uh, policy. This is obviously a main concern for UNESCO in general. Uh, it's the concern of our management of social transformations program and within it, particularly for the UNESCO Inclusive Policy Lab, uh, the whole purpose of which is to create a space to connect knowledge and data uh, to policy, not just in a one-way direction, but by creating precisely um, a mediating space between them. This nexus between what we know and how that informs our decisions and policy shifts is obviously critical if we're to achieve any aspect of uh, the sustainable development goals to which as a UNS uh, specialized agency uh, we are committed. So I'd, I'd like with you to discuss in closing uh, these issues in, to, in relation to data itself, data as an area of knowledge and of policy action. Um, in your opinion, um, in light of what we've been saying, but feel free if you wish to introduce uh, considerations we haven't covered so far, 
What are the uh, key gaps, uh, the areas where researchers need to dig deeper? Um, the key knowledge gaps we have about data, data systems, how data operate um, at the moment? Mm. I think one of the key gaps we have is actually, we, I mean, one thing, for example, when we have, we have had a lot of uh, research and a lot of uh, focus on uh, this uh, character of uh, what Susanna Shuboff calls uh, surveillance capitalism or what uh, David Leon calls uh, the surveillance society. And it's been depicted as this kind of general homogeneous experience where uh, we basically everyone has the same experience of surveillance. Uh, the same experience of lack of agency and lack of control of our data. And I think one of the key things that I see now, and I see some splendid researchers uh, looking into this, is this idea that, of course, surveillance is never, and it hooks up very well with what we've been talking about throughout this interview, this idea that surveillance is, of course, not a homogeneous experience. So there are some uh, groups and some societies and some regions that are having a particular uh, either much more grim experience of surveillance uh, or a different, um, are exposed in very different ways. And we need to have some critical data studies that are directly voicing those experiences, that are directly looking into, for example, how data is being used or abused on uh, specific vulnerable groups or specific regions, uh, and understanding, you know, what, how does that uh, how does that uh, reinforce again, and that really hooks up very well with our entire conversation. How does that, um, how, what what does that mean to, as we said, new digital divides? Um, so very empirical understandings of this non-homogeneous experience of, of data control and power. So those are those are kind of the, the things that I think that we, we really need to, to make it more nuanced, this debate actually. The other side of uh, this question uh, relates to policy, and we've been talking about it throughout the, the interview, throughout this podcast. Um, but if you could uh, distill um, several areas that you think need policy action now and are pressing, that we should be zooming on these areas in terms of regulation and policy action, which are those? Yeah, there's a few. Um, I think uh, I think one of the things that I mentioned before and that I think also is kind of been developed is this creating some legal frameworks about what I said before the uh, the data trusts uh, the technical environment uh, where citizens and people have insights uh, and where we change these uh, these power dynamics of having this very asymmetrical uh, relation between the ones that sit on data. Uh, and holds data and processes data and the ones that the data is processed on. And so I think we need, and I th and we already seen it in Europe, we had something called the Data Governance Act um, that came out, a proposal on this, where we're basically trying to create some legal mechanisms around creating this concept of data trust and, and how they can interact and how we create an infrastructure like that. So that's kind of the legal um, aspect. Uh, what we also need is, uh, in terms of policy, we, we need investments in actually creating these kind of technologies and these kind of businesses. So it's not enough that we just require, for example, that uh, you give uh, people access uh, to data and that you create transparency and explainability in these systems. You actually also have to entice it. And you can do that with investments, but you can also do this with, for example, I know different places where countries are starting to create knowledge hubs and platforms where you, uh, you for example, um, exchange uh, best practices and, and education on how to create technologies like these. And then in terms of, uh, as I said before, um, education, we, we really need a uh, different level of education in terms of data technology. So we need a kind of data literacy that has to be incorporated in school curricula, both at smaller, lower levels and higher levels in, at universities and, and, and below that. Um, and I, I think those are, are some of the key things. And then there's some areas that I think we have to be very concerned with. So we had the 
an AI regulation recently coming out in Europe uh, a few days ago that uh, looked, uh, and now I haven't read it through, but I've looked at it and I see there are certain areas that are considered um, prohibited uh, uses of artificial intelligence, which is very much focused on some of these areas where you have, the, for example, discriminatory effects or nudging of of people or use of biometric um, uh, technologies for mass surveillance, for example. Uh, and, and those are areas that I think that, of course, we need to develop and we have to consider where do we put the limit? Which, which things do we not want to accept? I mean, there is always the potential to digitalize and uh, datify everything, but there there might be limits that uh, to what we actually want to accept, what kind of trade-offs. I, I like to call it a kind of, we need a humanistic cost-benefit uh, analysis. Um, you know, where where do we draw the line in terms of the kind of datafied uh, um, architecture and space that we create? Do we really want facial recognition, for example, even if it's targeted, um, even if it's used only for targeted um, uh, surveillance, for example? Do we really want that in our in our everyday lives, uh, in our public spaces? I I don't I don't think it's uh, it's worth it actually in terms of what we lose. Thank you. I we don't have time, obviously, to dig further into that. I'm sure there'll be other opportunities, um, including within UNESCO's programs, to co consider that really important point, which is whether sometimes we are sacrificing too much, far too much in terms of public values for very minor benefits in terms of data availability. Um, and it's true that perhaps we're driven too much by technological excitement rather than a real sober assessment of uh, uh, the public good uh, in embracing certain uh, technological developments. Uh, thank you very, very much for spending this time with us, for talking to us about data from many uh, extremely uh, interesting angles. I'm sure this podcast will uh, uh, receive great uh, attention from our uh, enthusiastic audience. We do have oh, thank you. a very enthusiastic audience for these podcasts. <laughs> uh, so thank you. Uh, I agree for spending time with us, uh, with Yulia and myself, and looking forward to talking again at some point. And thank you for a great podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me. Pleasure. It was great.